Bibles uh, this evening to Exodus, Old Testament here, Exodus chapter 3. That's where we'll start tonight as we begin this series on meltdowns and wintertime. We often have a lot of meltdowns, don't we? Literally and figuratively. Um, Exodus chapter 3 is where we want to look tonight. You have me for the next five weeks, like it or not. Um, you can fire me if you want to, that's fine. I'll, uh, I'll take that too. Now, while we might think of meltdowns as, we, we naturally just think of it as related to kids, right? I mean, but adults too, you know, we can have our meltdowns. And maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're like, I don't have a lot of kids in my life to have meltdowns. There's more adults that have meltdowns. Well, we speak of a child or of an adult, a meltdown is an intense response to an overwhelming situation. That's kind of what it is. And it happens when a person becomes so completely overwhelmed that they temporarily lose control of their behavior. And that's why we call it, in children, has the idea of temper tantrums because it relates to their temper or their behavior. Um, and people often feel extreme emotions, anger, uh, sadness, fear, all this during a meltdown because the meltdown creates this, this sense of a high level of anxiety in which a person feels like there's no escape, feels like they are, they're trapped. And so when a meltdown does happen, there is typically one of three responses that people ordinarily take. They, they, they flee or flight or they fight or they freeze, okay? So in some cases, a person might feel unable to escape, so they've got to either fight or they freeze. So meltdowns don't always look the same um, for everyone. Um, for some, a meltdown is the center stage in a dramatic play called their life, right? For others, it might happen in a quiet space undisturbed in the corner of a dark room. So it's different for each person. But having a meltdown doesn't mean you're somehow less spiritual or somehow you are spiritually weak, it just simply means more than anything else that you're human, just like everybody else. And, and more often than not, a person who, who describes themselves as feeling overloaded is ripe for a meltdown. And if you know what that feels like, every person in this room ought to know what that feels like, that sense of overloaded. Children can be overloaded by an unhealthy demands their parents place upon them. They can be overloaded by the pressures of succeeding in school. They can be overloaded by various social pressures they might have from friends. Adults, too, can be easily overloaded with their jobs, raising children, with the financial hardships, dysfunctional family issues, Monday morning, <laughs> you know, and the list can go on. But the point of this series is not to list the different stimuli as much as I could that lead us into meltdowns. The point of the series is to see how God responds when a Bible character that we know and love goes into a meltdown. And that's the point. How does God pick them up? Uh, how does he guide them out of their pit of despair? How does he um, help them? Are we able to learn anything from that meltdown? Uh, is God trying to teach us something by the way in which he deals with us during a meltdown? So I thought maybe it's best to put it in the terms of the parable that Jesus told of the lost sheep. Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one who has strayed from the fold. In a like manner, when God responds to our meltdowns, it's as if we are the one lost sheep in the parable, and Jesus leaves the 99 other sane sheep, at least we think they're sane, to go after the one who's having the meltdown. 
And so that's kind of what I'm thinking as we, as we work through this series. It's important for us to see and understand not the fact that they had meltdowns. We get that. But, but what does God do? How does he respond to them in the midst of their meltdown? And so the first character we're going to start with is Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 in the life of Moses. So if you're um, already there in Exodus chapter 3, uh, we're going to read this passage of Scripture, a couple of verses from here just shortly. But before we get there, uh, just a little bit of context um, is important as leading up to this meltdown that happens in the life of Moses. Because one of the most basic facts of all meltdowns is that they always have a context. They always have a story. There's always a problem or situation that reaches the tipping point that causes, right, the meltdown. So that context is important. And in the life of Moses, it's a pretty big Big context. After the age of 40, after being raised in the court of Pharaoh, he decides to visit the Israelites, Moses does. And he wants to witness how his people are being mistreated. And so if you look at chapter 2 of Exodus, you're in chapter 3. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, look at what the text says. It says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and so he looked this way and that way, kind of like he's looking down the street. You know, he looks one way, right? He looks the other way. He looks this way. He looks that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Great plan, right? In the sand. Egypt, wind blows, you know. Verse 13, And then when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Yes. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. So Moses flees. That's his response. And dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So the context... Okay, before we get right to chapter 3, this is what's happened. As we come to chapter 3, 40 years have passed since those events caused Moses to flee into Midian. Moses is 80 years old now. I want you to let that set for a minute. He's 80 at this time. He's been living his life as a shepherd. He has a wife, has two kids. He has a family. And he's in the desert one day with his flock, and something catches his eye, and he goes to investigate and look at what happens here in, in Exodus chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of his Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a burning bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses says, I will turn now aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. And he says, don't draw near to the place. Take your sandals off for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God tells him who he is. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And verse 7, and God says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land into a good and large land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the other ites. Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now here it is. Watch closely, verse 10. Here's the ask. Now come, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now pause for a minute here. What do you think Moses is thinking about at this very moment in time? Can you imagine all the emotions, all the images going on in his mind? Maybe some of the images of him killing that Egyptian 40 years ago. Maybe some of the images of trying to flee Egypt, being pursued by by um, Pharaoh's army. I can't imagine all the emotions. And you can almost hear Moses, you know, can you say that again, Lord? I just want to be clear about what you're asking, Lord. You know, I just want to get it right. <laughs> so you want me, an 80-year-old shepherd who's lived in obscurity for 40 years, to go back to Egypt, confront the most powerful monarch in the world, demand that he release his 2 million strong labor force and plummet his economy. Did I get that right, God? I mean, that's ripe for a meltdown. I mean, when God asks that of Moses, he begins the process of this meltdown. From this point forward, the meltdown slowly begins to unfold by means of of a process. For other characters that we'll talk about in the series, their meltdown happens differently. It's like a flick of a switch because every person's meltdown is different. But for Moses, we're given some insight into kind of like the anatomy or the process, the thinking process, the conversations he has with God. Because for Moses, it's a slow burn. And the more questions he asks, kind of the deeper he gets into the process. And eventually it's going to lead to a full-blown meltdown. But the process is highlighted by some key words. And I have those I want to throw up on the screen here because I want you to mark these in your Bible. So take a minute, if you like to mark in your Bible, and just mark down these uh, five verses. Maybe you just want to circle the verse. Uh, Maybe you just want to uh, highlight the first part of the verse. But these are crucial because as you look down through this text in chapter 3 and chapter 4, this is the process. This is how it starts, okay? Moses protests to God. He protests to God. Moses protested again. <laughs> and then you get to this idea of Moses pleading to God. And then he pleads again to God. And those phrases are taken from the New Living Translation. I think they help clarify uh, the words the emotion behind Moses' words. Your translation might say something a little more generic, but I, I feel like these words kind of really get, get it right. So I want to look at this first protest he has to God. So look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve on this mountain. It's very simple, this first one. Have you forgotten, Lord, I tried to lead the people out of Egypt 40 years ago and they wanted nothing to do with me. What makes you think that they're going to follow me this time? Ironic how past defeats and humiliations tend to drag us down. 
much more than past victories. You know, time doesn't heal all wounds like in the, in the case of Moses here. Sometimes the passing of time only exasperates them even more. But Moses is focused on who he is, not on the God to whom he belongs. And so God deals gently with Moses, at least at this point he does. He doesn't rebuke his protest, just simple words. He assures him, I am with you. I mean, very, very simple, very, very gentle, like a shepherd. God does not, God does not say it's gonna be easy, it's gonna be simple, it's not gonna require any effort. He simply says, I'm with you, right? So rest assured, Moses is gonna be fearful. Time and time again, he's gonna be fearful. But God wants Moses to focus more on a, on a much more powerful belief in trusting in God's presence, that the fact that when God says, I am with you, he means what he says. Now, think of it this way. Um, parents or, or grandparents, you know, when your son or daughter is afraid of the boogeyman, Remember the boogeyman? I was, I was thinking about this, this uh, illustration today, and I was like, why do they call it the boogeyman? Like, yeah, I'd be afraid of a guy that had boogies, you know, coming after me too as a kid. I mean, you know, whatever you might want to choose to be, a boogeyman, a monster, whatever it might be, okay? So parents, when your son or daughter is afraid of the boogeyman, so it prevents them from sleeping at night, right? And so you can really, really work hard, and you can tell them there's no such thing as this imaginary boogeyman, it, don't worry about it. Don't, don't be afraid of it. But you know that it doesn't do anything, right? They're still, still ghastly afraid of this, this, this fictional creature. You've got to take action. So like any good father or a mother, you sit at the foot of the bed, right? You stand guard while they sleep, or at least until they fall asleep. <laughs> and the intent is if the boogeyman comes out, right, then dad or mom will take care of it. There's no sense in trying to deny the fear. It must be replaced with trust in the Father. And rather than trying to explain away all of Moses' concerns and questions, God says to Moses, for Pharaoh to get to you, he must go through me. And if he's going to go through me, then just know that I am with you. And although appearing in this exact form only once in Exodus, that phrase, that promise, I am with you, it appears more than a hundred times in the Old Testament. It has to be one of the most encouraging phrases in all of Scripture. The last words that Jesus gave to his disciples upon leaving the earth, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so like Moses, when, 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 when we're in the midst of a meltdown, you might not feel it, you might not acknowledge it, but the fact of the matter is, the truth is, is that God is with you. It's just a simple, simple promise. But, unfortunately, the promise of the Lord's presence for Moses aren't enough. He keeps going. He protests further. Look at verse 13. Then Moses says to God again. Moses protests again. Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So Moses is not only conscious of his lack of qualifications 
for the task. But he's also concerned about the perception of the people. He's worried they're not going to accept him. They're not going to accept his leadership. And so he's kind of projecting his own personal doubts onto the Israelites before the task ever begins. He's setting himself up for failure before it ever begins. Why should I even go? They're never going to believe me anyway. Now, from Moses' life, though, we know that his concerns are valid, right? All the Israelites know of Moses, and if they know anything at all, they know that he was brought up in Egypt, right? He committed murder, and, and he's a fugitive from justice. So he kind of has a reputation already. Who's going to believe that God's going to give a criminal the great task of leading the people out of Egypt? I can hear Moses saying, they will not believe that you have sent me, nor that you've entrusted me with a leadership role among them. What am I supposed to say to them when they ask me? And, and just as soon as he says that, no sooner than Moses speaks his word, God replies immediately with the famous words, tell them I am sent you. Now, the amount of literature, if you study chapter 3, verse 14, that is written on I am who I am, it's staggering. It'd take you weeks, if not months, to just go through it all. Um, you could translate the phrase I am who I am in many different ways. Let me give you a few. I am who I am. I am who I was, I am who I shall be, I am who I am, I was who I am, sorry. I was who I was, I was who I shall be, I shall be who I am, I shall be who I was, or I shall be who I shall be. Make sense? Good. So the name that God uses here in the text and how it should be phonetically pronounced, I don't think is a significant part, it is. But it's the nature and character of what the name conveys that's key. So in other words, God doesn't offer a label for his name. He offers a theology for his name. The immediate context, it's God's presence that is most dominant. It's, it's not just my name, but it's everything behind my name, he says. One author explains it this way. Listen to what he says. God will always be there for his people in a distant, even in a distant Egypt too, even if that divine presence is questioned and imperceptible. He will always be whatever his people need him to be in any given moment, in, every, in any given place. If they need a deliverer, that's Yahweh. If they need grace and mercy and forgiveness, that's Yahweh. If they need purifying and empowerment, that's Yahweh. If they need rebuke and chastisement, that's Yahweh. If they need guidance, that's Yahweh. For God is a I will be what I will be God and I will be what I need to be for you, God. That's all hyphenated, by the way. So like Moses, right, when we're in a meltdown, we have this false conception of being trapped, thinking there's no escape. But we must remember that the God we serve, as the text says, he's the great I am, and it's not just the name, but it's everything that's behind the name. And that means whatever meltdown we find ourselves struggling with or facing, God is the one, the one who is qualified to help us. But yet in all of that reassurance, Moses continues to struggle. Further down the text in verse 18, I'm not going to read this, verses 19 through 22, Moses has more questions. God says, I'll take care of the Egyptians. I'll take care of the Israelites. I will make the elders of Israel believe you. Yet even with this promise, with these promises, he still has doubts. Rational thinking's gone out the door. Your worst fears arise to push out, push out the rational ones. But look at his third protest. 
chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So for whatever reason, Moses felt that dropping God's name would not be enough to convince the Israelites. Like, hey, I'm a representative of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, okay. He needed more proof to convince them. And, and although God has already reassured him, Moses still feels the people, still feels they're not going to listen because he has no way of demonstrating to them that God appeared to them. In the same way that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how am I supposed to explain that to them? The word believe is used multiple times in the following verses. Moses is on this brink of having a meltdown because he, he knows that unless he has something powerful to show the people, they just won't believe him. So in response, God says, okay, I'll give you three miraculous signs to use in the face of Israel's disbelief. Moses' staff becomes a snake. His hand is covered with flaky scales or leprosy. And then now water will become blood. Three signs of God's power, God says. I'll give you these. Power over creation, power over people, and power of nature. God says, I'll give you these as proof. And these are given to unquestionably demonstrate that God is sovereign that he is in control of all things. And if the phrase, I am with you, provides us with an enormous level of encouragement, then the phrase, I am in control of all things, should provide us with even a greater level of encouragement. I want you to think about that. You know, I am with you. The the, the enormous amount of encouragement that comes behind that phrase, then for the fact that God says, I'm in control of all things. There's nothing that takes me by surprise. You know, for us today, we look back on Israel's past and see how God was sovereign over all things, how he worked seemingly awful mistakes, right, for his good purposes. And that same God is still sovereign today. And he will never cease to be sovereign over all things. And we serve that same God. So in the midst of the meltdown, when we feel like everything has lost control, we've lost control of everything, the point is God hasn't lost control. So When we get to that point, when we feel like there's no other escape because things are so out of control, rest assured in the promise that not only is God with you, but he's in control of all things. It might not look like he's in control of all things on the surface. You know, last week from what Chris told us, it might not look like God is in control with all the things that are happening in Israel, but rest assured, rest assured, he is in control of all things. So as Moses continues to have this conversation, now, now it turns a little bit. It's gone from protesting. Moses protests to God. He protests again. He protests again. And now it gets a little bit different. He changes his language from protesting to pleading. Okay? So now he's, he, he, you know, he's, he's over the cliff a little bit, and he's going down into the meltdown. And look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The NLT renders this verse, but Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been. I'm not now, even though you spoke to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. He's looking for any means of escape. 
He didn't believe that he was proficient enough to persuade the elders of Israel. He says, they are not going to believe me. Pharaoh's not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. But God calmly responds. God gently responds. That excuse doesn't hold up. God says, I'm the maker of your mouth. (laughs) Doesn't he? Look at verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have I not, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with you and your mouth and teach you, I added that, and teach you what you shall say. Now, interestingly, if you go into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives this amazing speech and he talks about Moses. And this is what he says of Moses. He says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty, ready, in words and deeds. So Moses... Your excuse is not valid. It doesn't work. In fact, if there was anyone designed for this moment in history, it was Moses. And that's not by coincidence because that's by God's design. And so when we look back at meltdowns we've experienced in the past, sometimes we have to come to the realization that it was not a coincidence that it happened. Some things we feel like are coincidences, right? And some things we feel like, well, that wasn't a coincidence. You know, at the time of the meltdown that we're having, we're not concerned with what we can learn or how beneficial it can be. We just want to survive, and we want to get through it, don't we? We just just get me through it. It's just a reminder that God's timing is perfect, and God can use something horrible like a meltdown to bring us back on course, to teach us a valuable lesson, or to demonstrate that he is right by our side in, in, in the dark, dark times. Well, Moses makes one more final plea. Chapter 4, verse 13. Moses again pleaded. Look at what verse 13 says. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Now, the NIV says it this way. Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Pretty simple, right? Please send someone else to do it. And, and, And at this point... You know, the text is clear that God's patience with Moses is worn a little bit thin. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he says, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth. There it is again. I will be with you, right? I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you, uh, what you shall do and what you shall say. Even at this point, when the Lord is, is, is frustrated, we'll say, at Moses, because he's just not getting the point, God permits, God accommodates Moses. He permits Aaron to go with Moses to Egypt and to be his mouthpiece. God was merciful to Moses. He could have said no, but instead he responded again. God responded gently to Moses and his meltdown. And ironically, after the first couple of chapters of Exodus, Moses basically does all the rest of the speaking and Aaron's speaking parts in the play of the, uh, of the drama of redemption here in the Exodus, they, they kind of dwindle down. The insight here that we can get from Moses' meltdown at its lowest point is that he had become thoroughly just disillusioned. Um, one author says it this way. He says he regarded himself as a failure, the objects of his ministry as hopeless, 
And God is unfaithful, uncaring, and unable to deliver his people. He had learned his own inability to deliver Israel, but he did not yet believe in God's ability to do so. Even the miraculous revelation of God at the burning bush, the miracles that God enabled Moses to perform, did not convince him of God's purpose and God's power. And yet, in all of Moses' disillusionment, during the whole process of this meltdown, God was not silent. He was not silent. He pursued him. He appeared to him. He told him his name, gave him signs for proof, proof, assured him of his presence, guaranteed his success, guided him every step of the way. And all those things can be placed under that phrase, I am with you. Just that simple phrase. When I had constructed the majority of this message, I finished it on Thursday. Um, Thursday was our, our, our uh, Ebenezer Kids um, Club. And so I went down to Ebenezer, and I was thinking in my mind, Lord, there's, there's time to change it. Is this the direction you want me to go? That's what all preachers go through and think about. You know, Is this the direction you want me to go? Do you want me to change it? Do you want me to go somewhere? I've got time. It's only Thursday, right? I've got 72 hours, right? It's, it's only Thursday, and as we were going out the back of Ebenezer, getting ready to leave, and I was cleaning up some stuff, I walked toward the back, and I love the beautiful stained glass, right? Beautiful stained glass in the back of Ebenezer. You've never seen this right there. And of the thousands of different things, right, that could, had a picture of Jesus. He's holding a lamb, I think, or maybe has a lamb, something like that. I didn't see a whole lot of the image as much as I saw the text. Of all the things that Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and life, or, um, you know, any other thousands of things, what does it say? Lo, I am with you always. And I thought, okay, Lord, well, I guess I'll stay with that. Because when you look at the life of Moses, when you look at his meltdown, everything can be placed under that phrase. Moses protested to God. Moses says, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Chapter 3, verse 11. God says, it's not about you, it's about me, and I will be with you every step of the way. Chapter 3, verse 13, but Moses protested to God. Moses says, what should I tell the people when they ask me your name? Tell them I am sent you because I am always with you. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses protested again. The people won't believe me without signs. God says, here are some signs that demonstrate what? That I am with you. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses pleaded with the Lord. I'm not good with words. God says, I will be with you and with your mouth as you speak. Chapter 4, verse 13, Moses again pleaded, send anyone else but me. In frustration, God says, what about the phrase, I'm with you? Don't you understand? You want someone else to go other than me to go with you? You see, in the deep recesses of a meltdown, when hope is dim and there seems to be nothing that could remedy your downward spiral. Just remembering the simple phrase, I am with you, can start the recovery process. And, you know, your meltdown might be longer than others, longer than you'd like it to be. I think all of them are like that. But know this, all recovery begins when we realize that we are not alone in the darkest hours of a meltdown. It's real simple. God is with us every step of the way, but we have to, 
acknowledge that fact. Look how long it took Moses to finally say, okay, I got it. It took Moses five different conversations. I don't know how long of a time it took, but after this, look what he does. So Moses, or um, at the end of um, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, so Moses went and returned to Jethro. His father-in-law said, please let me go and return to my brethren who were in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. All right, time to go. Doesn't tell Jethro anything that's happened of the whole situation, right? Doesn't tell Jethro, hey, I had this argument with God and he's persuaded me to go. He just says, it's time to go. Because he got it. He realized that the end of this thing, the only thing that was important was the simple fact that God was going to go with me. That's it. And so whenever we get into a meltdown, whenever we have a hard time, a difficulty, and, and, and whatever that meltdown looks like, there's got to be a way where you get shaken and you're reminded that God is going to be with you every step of the way. Next time that we, next Sunday, we'll look at another character in the Old Testament, um, and that's Elijah. And Elijah was a great prophet of God, did great things. But when a woman got mad at him, he turned his tail and went in the other direction. And so we'll talk about him next week. But please do not forget, please do not forget, when that meltdown hits, the one thing, and it took Moses two chapters to realize what was going on. I am with you. 